Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Liz Kelly. With the NFL season a week away and the Ringer's fantasy football coverage gearing up, we have released our first ever Fantasy Football Hall of Fame. We assembled a panel of voters, including Bill Simmons, Cousin Sal, Robert Mays, Mallory Rubin, and more, to induct the 25 best fantasy football players of all time. You can find the rankings by going directly to fantasyfootball.theringer.com. And for more fantasy football coverage, check out the Fantasy Football Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. David, a handful of conservatives on Twitter have found themselves with an unlikely hero. Dave Chappelle. (laughs) What I want to know is, what other entertainers from evil liberal culture (laughs) would you recommend to our friends on the right? Oh my gosh, I wonder who they're... I mean, uh, it's, uh, Chris is the younger end here. Maybe you he can help me with this. Do you think they'd like Lizzo? Like, what is the... Uh, is Lana Del Rey a, 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 a crypto conservative? And we don't know... The conservatives... Wait, I have a question. Do conservatives think... The conservatives still think that Bill Maher is a liberal? Because he because he's one of those guys that I can imagine them like look watching every week and just being like, you know, he's making a lot of really good points. I don't really know. Yeah. I have a feeling Bill Maher's kind of been disowned by everybody because yeah. I think he makes everybody so mad. That's, he has a gift that, for it. That I'm not okay. sure he has a Yeah. Um, I, what I was thinking when I saw this story was how many kind of fading comedians could just easily rebrand as the conservative comedian and basically host every night of the RNC next year. I mean, that just seems like such an easy career move. Oh, yeah. That, that's totally true. I mean... I mean, name your fam- name your favorite like conservative. I mean, uh, Ricky Gervais, uh, who I think we might that might come up later Absolutely. in this conversation. One hundred percent. Bill Burr is about a millimeter away. Um, I mean, Jay Leno, I think, is probably one of the more liberal guys that will, <laughs> that'll come on the list. But he's fully embraced by you know like um, would take that gig. Yeah, at this point. Absolutely true. There's always. I mean, you know, I, we don't even need to get into like the Joe Rogan and friends part of the conversation. I think he's already found the audience that he needs to find. But like. At my house last weekend, we watched both the blue call, the original blue collar comedy tour, and the original Kings of Comedy. Probably a lot of stuff in the original Kings of Comedy that would go over pretty well with the uh, blue collar comedy tour crowd in 2019. Um, <laughs> and I could definitely see like Steve Harvey just making the MAGA move if the you know if the if the right if the right paycheck presented itself. I don't. I think every comedian sort of right there. I think that's right. We are the Catch a Rising Star of Media podcast. This is the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here. Lots to get to today. We're going to talk about the rebooting of Pete Buttigieg's presidential campaign, an update on the New York Times bedbug saga. We'll talk about the new conservative alliance with Dave Chappelle, and we'll make a climb to the top of Mount Journalism. But David, I want to start off by talking to you about the big tragic story of Labor Day weekend, which was Hurricane Dorian. It was a Category 5 hurricane at one point with winds that reached up to 180 miles per hour, according to the New York Times. It seemed to stop moving over the Bahamas, making for some very eerie weather map television. The Prime Minister of the Bahamas, Hubert Minnis, calls Dorian's damage a historic tragedy. And one thing that was striking to me as I watched the coverage was the extent to which the media, both TV and print, relied on user video 
to show the scope of the devastation. We saw lots of video from the Abaco Islands, which has 17,000 residents. Five deaths were reported there early on and damage to thousands of homes. Here was part of one widely circulated video from the Abaco Islands. Please pray for us. Please pray for us, everyone. Please pray for us. Me and my baby, my, everyone that stay in the apartment building, we stuck right here. Please pray for us. Maxie, y'all, please. Baby, pray for us. Pray for Abaco, please. I'm begging y'all. My baby's on the floor, but so please pray for us. That voice belonged to Gertha Joseph, 34 years old, who posted that account on Facebook Live. According to The Guardian, she and her infant son were later rescued, so they are fine, thankfully. I guess the first observation, David, is just a sense that this is another one of those cases that in this world where we presumably know everything and can see everything instantly, something like this happens and Mm. we are left to rely on desperate people who are in their attics or on the roof or have the you know, the roof of their house torn off to basically tell us a story through harrowing videos and Facebook posts and stuff like that. And it's just, it's strange and it's, and it's moving and it's, and it really is staggering. Yeah. I mean, I think that in, in, in tropical storms past, especially, you know, in, in, in years past, we would at best be hearing these stories second or third hand from a reporter who was, you know, in a uh, rain parka knee deep in, in beach water while everybody watching at home was sort of like half seriously asking what they were doing out there. Um, it's funny. I mean, not funny. It's interesting, I guess, that in like a moment like this where the real story can can really consume our lives and consume the news media in some ways it and and again like you said this is a, a partially a byproduct of the social media era of the you know modern internet age but it really just shows the sort of inadequacy of news media or the or, or the, the this is a moment when synthesis such as we're used to you know experiencing it is, isn't really necessary and and in the modern era obviously it's it's not necessary for even you know the bare bones of just conveyance of, or you know, editing of material, or you know, this is this is a we're getting a, a direct line, and and um, I don't know, it feels like nothing else really matters. Yeah, inadequacy is an interesting word. I guess it's just a reminder that we don't we don't have everything covered, and there right. are places on the globe where you know there weren't. There were a couple of local news services there. I don't believe, uh, at least in the in the reading that I did, that there was an American. Uh, correspondent who was over there, at least in the Abaco Islands, when the storm hit. Uh, we did have a lot of those people in ponchos, but they were all in Florida, places like that, watching the uh, storms come in. I was also interested in your take on this tweet by Casa de Oruga, uh, which was tweeted out over the weekend. Person in hurricane's eye, oh my God, everything I know is destroyed and it's about to happen again media on twitter hi there sounds like that sucks do you own the copyright to this video we'd love to use it yeah um what do you make of that because i it does put us it does put the media in this interesting position because on the one hand you're trying to spread the word you're trying to you know in 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 any way you can show the devastation without having your own cameras there as we just said but on the other there is something 
exploitative almost about, you know, sort of drooling over any piece of coverage that you can then, you know, retweet, put on your, put on your news accounts, Twitter feed to, you know, send around the world. What do you make of that problem? Wow. I talk about inadequacy. You know, social media platforms in general are not, are, are not very functional places to communicate in terms of nuance, in terms of sarcasm, in terms of uh, any number of things. And this is just one of those things where, um, I mean, I'm not sure that the, that the, for, I mean, that the, that the formal, I mean, the, the formality of asking for permission, I don't think the, the news outlets are particularly happy with the system as it's evolved either. Um, but I don't think that it's a, it's hard for me to, you know, to say that it's like a, a, a negative that, that they would be trying to use this footage. Cause like we just said, I mean, I think that this unfiltered view from, from the, you know, the eye of the storm is, is exactly what we need to really understand what we're, what we're experiencing. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm a, I'm a multiple minds about it. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, I, I am too. And I think it's just a reminder that probably the media is always simultaneously informative and exploitative. That yeah. Those two things are going it. on at once, you know, even CNN, even the New York times, whatever, you know, there is a, not to, not to, you know, dive into the Janet Malcolm territory here, but there is this, you know, exploitative, you know, hungry for hungry for clicks nature to what we do, even when you're doing, you know, a quote unquote worthy story. And this to me just, just highlights it. If anything, it just gets right at it because, you know, why are, why are you sharing those videos? Well, you know, I just, I just want to, I just want to show what the devastation is like. Okay. Um, but you know, there is, there is an edge to that. And, you know, it's just a fascinating question. And again, by the way, it's not just those videos either watching some of the storm coverage on TV today and this weekend, you know, there were a lot of people standing on the beach that had that weird, you know, weather coverage smile on their face. Like, Oh, here, I'm here on the beach. I'm, I'm getting blown over a couple of inches, you know? And, you know, again, there's, there's, there's something very worthy about putting yourself in some kind of mild danger and doing that kind of stuff. But there is also something, you know, a little show offy about it. And again, I just think, a- I think the media is usually both things at the same time. Yeah, I think show off is right. I mean, I was watching a bit today with and I I guess I use bit deliberately where someone was on, I believe it's the Outer Banks in North Carolina, where the where the newscaster was in a raincoat and everything else or, you know, just sort of prepping for the storm. And there were people literally sunbathing on the beach, you know, I'm guessing locals who hadn't been shuffled off the island yet. But I think those those scenes are I mean, they've been they're inherently funny. I mean, they're not if not funny, they're inherently comedic, you know, and they're silly, ridiculous. Yeah. ridiculous yeah and i and i don't think that there's yeah i guess i i guess i guess especially in the face of this of of actual footage of people uh experiencing actual um you know terror <laughs> and and damage and catastrophe and everything else I, it's it's hard to really see what the what the purpose is except to like you said to sort of exploit to show off whatever else yeah well you need a news picture right television exists on news pictures so uh, one place you go is you take the user generated video that was of desperate people that was posted to Facebook Live. Uh, if you don't have that, you put your newsman or woman on the beach. 
and you can go to them every 30 minutes, right? It's pictures. There's no, there's no hurricane yet, uh, in Florida, but you can show your newsman sort of being blown around lightly. That's the picture. That's what they want, you know? So, and they'll, you know, when they can no longer be on the beach, they'll come inside and they'll substitute other pictures. That's just, I just think it's at some level, it's TV saying, what can we, what can we put on here? What can be entertaining? And that person, of course, standing on the beach doesn't have any information that a person in the studio doesn't have. Let us turn for a second to the president and his response uh, to the unfolding hurricane. Here he was earlier giving a briefing uh, about the upcoming storm at FEMA headquarters. I have not sure. I'm not sure that I've ever even heard of a Category 5. I knew it existed, and I've seen some Category 4s. You don't even see them that much, but... A Category 5 is something that uh, I don't know that I've ever even heard the term other than I know it's there. That's the ultimate, and that's what we have, unfortunately. Reminder that the president owns a giant club in Florida. Apparently unfamiliar with hurricane terminology. Only the biggest hurricanes. Only the best hurricanes under my watch. Trump also tweeted that Alabama... uh, would potentially be affected by Dorian. James Spann, an Alabama meteorologist... Uh, had to come out on Twitter and say that that wasn't true and then say this because we live in the age of Trump. I have zero interest in politics. Dorian will not affect Alabama in any way. That is not a political statement. Yes, uh, because he contradicting the president is inherently a political statement, even when it's about hurricanes. National Weather Service also came out and backed up a span. No, Alabama would not be hit by Dorian. The president came out and then repeated the Alabama bit twice more even attacking the media for pointing out the error. He also played a ton of golf this weekend, David. <laughs> and and I usually don't try not to worry about this stuff because then we go down the bad look slash optics rabbit hole, which makes me want to just crawl into a dark place and go away. But he is, of course, the guy, as we were reminded this week, who promised constantly that he wouldn't be playing golf and attacked Obama shamelessly for playing golf instead of being president. So that happened too. I guess there's an interesting question about when you have the president of the United States repeating inaccurate information yeah, about who's going to be hit and not really knowing the terminology at stake here, mm-hmm. isn't there an argument that Trump is better playing golf than he is addressing the American people? <laughs> about the storm i'm i'm kidding but i'm really not yeah would you would you like the president tweeting through the storm or would you just like him playing 18 i mean i'd certainly rather number two i think we'd probably rather all rather and be on the golf course than like you know in the situation room ordering nuclear bombs dropped willy-nilly and you know as the storm progresses um yeah, I mean, it's easy to make the joke that he, he his energy would probably, you know, if he took any, if he took eight, eight or nine holes and tried to under, actually understand what was going on, the whole country might be better off. Um, but yeah, I think in general, you're right. Let the guy play golf um, and let the professionals tell us what's going on. Finally, uh, the writer Craig Pittman, on the occasion of Dorian, tweeted this. This is the worst hurricane lead of all time, he calls it. Uh, It was written by the late Al Newharth, who ran Gannett Newspapers and founded USA Today. Uh, It appeared in Florida Today in 1979 on the occasion of Hurricane David, Pittman writes. Are you ready for this lead? Um, Hurricane David, (laughs) 
I keep trying to pronounce this like I pronounce your name at the beginning of the podcast. <laughs> Hurricane David, the first major storm named after a male, acted very much like a loose woman all day Monday, dancing along Florida's East Coast and flirting dangerously with cities from Miami to Melbourne. <laughs> wow. Your analogy in a newspaper lead was to a loose woman, quote unquote. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, that I feel I'm embarrassed to be associated with that uh, naming convention. Uh, <laughs> you should be. All right, David. Time now for the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received. Big news from the British Parliament today. Conservative MP Philip Lee defected to the Liberal Democrats. He literally walked to the Lib Dem benches and sat with them while Prime Minister Boris Johnson so was talking. Johnson no longer has a one vote majority in the House of Commons. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, by God, it's Philip Lee. He's cashing in his money in the bank briefcase to try to save democracy. <laughs> Thanks to Dr. Blumen. Of all of Bill Simmons' <laughs> legacies, and, and there are many, making the world safe for Jim Ross jokes is really gonna be gonna be right up there. <laughs> Thank him for it every day. It, it's hard it's hard to overstate how many people on this planet Earth make that joke. It really mm -hmm. is, uh, that he put out there. Anyway, thanks to Dr. Blumen again for that. David, I don't know if you flipped on the TV last night, but there was some bonus Labor Day college football going on. Louisville taking on Notre Dame. Hell yeah. And when Louisville's quarterback Juwan Pass ran the ball, it was a pretty reprehensible overworked Twitter joke to write, folks. Maybe they should call him Juwan Run. <laughs> Thanks to Greg Fingers. That's terrible. But but sometimes sometimes during a game like that, which what by the way was not incredibly exciting despite turnovers on three consecutive plays at one point. <laughs> the bad joke is just the joke you want. Juwan Run. Uh, good stuff. <laughs> Finally, David, on Sunday, Pope Francis was late for Angelus in uh, St. Peter's Square in the Vatican City. The Pope explained to the crowd, I was stuck in an elevator for 25 minutes before being rescued by firefighters. Pope was stuck in an elevator. It was an extremely overworked Twitter joke to write firefighters. What happened to thoughts and prayers? Thanks to Tony <laughs> Groves for that one. And also, by the way, thanks to Rob the Sports Grouch for sending in the pun Headline, Pope Immobile. So like, you know, the Pope oh Mobile. Gosh. Somebody did Pope Immobile. Anyway, if you tried out the same joke template for Republican senators and his holiness, congrats, you made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. All right, David, time for the notebook dump. Another of the presidential candidates has unofficially rebooted his campaign. I perked up when I saw this article in McClatchy from David Catanese that we are finally experiencing the reboot judge. Yeah. I think we called for this like three months ago. Mm -hmm. But America's Mayor Pete Buttigieg is attempting something of a reset. On Labor Day, his campaign is kicking off something called, and I kid you not, the Pete Wave. Not the Heat Wave, the Pete Wave. Uh, part of the plan is to make a bunch of hires uh, for the upcoming primaries and caucuses, but they are also going to start, as they say in politics, drawing contrasts between Buttigieg and the other candidates. So no more Mr. Nice Guy. 
or, or a little less Mr. Nice Guy. Yes, the mayor can throw a punch and we're ready to take on anyone, his campaign manager tells Katniss. Now, this was interesting to me because you have a guy in Judge whose whole brand is built on being Mr. Nice. And now he's stuck in the polls. And so he can't be Mr. Nice anymore, or he doesn't think he can be Mr. Nice anymore. So the question for him is, how do I go on the offensive without blowing all the goodwill that I've accumulated by being the smart, likable technocrat? Ooh, I mean, it's a, it's a quandary. Uh, I mean, I think that most of the people watching the campaign, I can't speak for the Buddha judge heads out there. Uh, I mean, I mean, I know that there are a lot of people who are who who feel very strongly about the man, um, but I feel like from where I'm sitting, like the 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 hope, the assumption, the hope, the whatever is that he would just sort of stay true to himself, and if that doesn't place him in like you know the top one or two or three on uh, in the primary field, then that's fine. Then he's still in a different and more advantageous and more influential position than he was when he started, right? I mean, I. Um, but you want to win, don't you? You don't. I mean, you're at this point. You're not being like, you know, what if I could finish? But fourth? isn't his candidacy? Isn't his candidacy based on the idea that like it might be a smart idea if you guys voted me in less than I desperately <laughs> want to be a candidate? Isn't isn't the isn't the 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 like the passion that the, the the like the passionate desire to be to win? Like the antithesis of what the Buddha Judge candidacy has been up to this point, I guess that I guess that's the, that's the that's problem, the, right? And I and I, and I don't know. I mean, obviously, politicians want to win, so maybe I'm I'm being too hopeful. But I mean, or I'm I, you know I, I'm the one with being unrealistic. But but it's just, um, you know. And so like if it, if if he's having a tough time figuring out the right angle for rebooting, then I mean that's because that's not the candidacy he's run to this point. Yeah. First of all, I'd love to see the bumper sticker. It'd be a smart idea for you guys to vote me in <laughs> that that's definitely waiting for a t-shirt, but, but you know, I think that's the essential problem. I I'd say this, I think you can do it without completely just, you know, going Scarface on all the other candidates, Yeah. but you know, it, it is a puzzle. I, I do think he really does want to be president. And I think he believes if you listen to him, I think that guy believes he can be president. Yeah. I don't think this is a just a raise my profile and get a nice cabinet post out of it or become chairman of the DNC. I think he really does. I really I think he is one of those guys who believes he could be the next president of the United States. Yeah. And he'd probably be good at it. And, you know, I mean, there, there's there's reason to believe that. Sure. And we saw it with Kamala Harris, you know, when she attacked Biden, and of course, her polls have since come back down to earth. But when she did that at, at the first debate, what was interesting about that moment was she was proving to people that she could stand up to Trump. It wasn't just about, oh, I'm going to kneecap Joe Biden, the front runner. I'm, I'm proving that I've got the fight that I want to be president. So I guess it's kind of coming around to what you just said. When you're willing to be a little rougher with the other Democratic candidates, you're showing donors, the media, voters, et cetera, et cetera, that you really want this. And are you yeah. going to. So so it's sort of like you've got to be a little bit mean to prove to them that you want to be president. Maybe that's it. I think that that's all true. 
I don't think there's anything in the in the Buddha judge candidacy that I, I just I, I think that it's I, that 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 would make that feasible. I think that all he's doing is all he all he, that he risks damaging his brand more than he does more than he does succeed, you know, in, on a donor level or anything else. I mean, listen, it's a, he he's a smart guy who who has some good ideas and 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 I just feel like the whole I I just feel like he's I mean, listen, the the I don't know what a better course for it is short of like hiring a sea of brilliant writers and somehow just like turning the entire like scripting the entire debate stage into like you know walk like having the other candidates walk backwards into like scenes from being there or something where they you know because that's what this is I mean, to being their candidacy right I mean he's just like to to make people look make fools of themselves and have Buttigieg just stand there with like a grin shrugging shoulders I mean that's the only way to really take people down <laughs> and not damage the brand right I mean it's it's a yeah. it's it's like it's 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 a I don't know I I agree though I agree he has to show some he has to show some fight he has to show some some backbone. He's tried to do that though in the candidacy up to this. I mean, in in his campaign up to this point, he's 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 done that. And every time he's given a major interview, he's tried to he's tried to look a little bit tougher than he did the day before. And I just think it's a more. I think it's more of like a, a primal shift than 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 I would say he or most candidates are willing to admit. You know, I mean, it's you can say you're you can say you're rebooting over and over again. Um. I don't know that just like a McClatchy article is enough, you know, signal that this this is going to change. I think he's either. I think we we have to see a, a much. We have to we have to. I mean, I think on some level he has to acknowledge it publicly that that more is needed. Of, I mean, that more is needed of his candidacy and and uh, and and really make it make it make the make the reboot the narrative. I mean, that's the only way. I think. Yeah, I think part of these reboot articles is your telegraph. You go to the media and you're sort of telegraphing to the rest of the media that you're about to do something or that they should pay attention to you again. Cause he's had the unique problem that everybody was interviewing him and profiling him at an early stage in the campaign because he was likable and popular. And also he was giving tons of interviews. Um, but now people have are paying less attention because his poll numbers are stuck. So you go and give interviews like this or you do a piece like this because you want to, you want to tell the Washington post and the New York times, Hey, heads up. I'm about to do some, pay attention to me again over here. Uh, he also does to your point. Let me just change metaphors a little bit from being there. Buddha judge feels like he'd be more successful in the Aaron Sorkin TV show about this campaign. That's what I'm getting at. Okay. Maybe Aaron Sorkin would have been the better example than, than the actual campaign, right? He yeah. feels like the hero of that. You know, he's, a, he's just, he just wants common sense solutions. He's a mayor. He's not a creature of Washington, David. He's Dave. He's like the, the, the presidential candidate lookalike. <laughs> who's just like, wait, can't I just see through all this madness? Yeah. I mean, that's it. Yeah. If I could just bring people together and get some common sense solutions and, and young, right? He, he's, yeah. he's, 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 he's like the, he's like the, the guy who gets elected. He's the Jimmy Smith's guy in the Aaron Sorkin thing, right? He's not, <laughs> he's not the old president. He's the young, he's the young up and comer. No, I, I, um. I like this. He either needs Aaron Sorkin to be his speechwriter or just to write the campaign for everyone, but yes. probably the latter. I have this down, David, as Bedbug Redux. Oh, no. Uh, if you're not on media Twitter, and God bless you if you're not, this is the quick backstory. The New York Times got a bedbug infestation last week. A George Washington professor named Dave Carve joked on Twitter that much loathed columnist Brett Stevens was, in fact, a bedbug. Stevens found the tweet and seemed to use his position as a Times columnist to get Carf in trouble at work. Dave Carf exposed said effort. Much dunking ensued. And then, deep breath, 
Stevens wrote a column published this last Friday night, not naming Karp, but drawing parallels between Twitter today and the Nazis' use of radio during World War II. Stevens writes, Watching Warsaw's Jewish ghetto burn, a Polish anti-Semite was overheard saying the bedbugs are on fire. The Germans are doing a great job. So Brett Stevens has taken a gag tweet. He has abused the power of his position. And now because he looked dumb, he is ratcheting up this into an indirect charge Uh. of anti-Semitism. How silly and awful and lame is this uh oh is that a question for me that's very okay, yeah. the answer the yeah my answer Not is very very silly and very awful and very lame all the um <laughs> okay let's when, move on no, i know i need i need i just want to admit that i uh that i would i was i was totally off the grid this weekend for the first time in a long time and i and i Lucky and i you. surfaced yeah, I surfaced, um, you know, at a at like a, a a roadside antique store where there was suddenly I suddenly had cell phone signals and I and I saw your email and you and I just saw that it said I saw that it said bedbugs redux and then like something in parentheticals like holy crap and uh, and I just was like for the next then I lost service and for the next two hours was just left to wonder what Brett Stevens had done like I was like did Brett Stevens get fired did Brett Stevens just say something even more crazy. Um, this was not what I was expecting. It might, it might, maybe it should have been the leader in the clubhouse. But in some ways, this is even this is maybe the wildest part of the story. I mean, I just can't. I, I just can't imagine the thought process that. Listen, I, mean, I guess I imagine I, it's easy to see why Brett Stevens wrote this piece. I mean, after everything he's done so far, I, it's it's interesting that he wasn't humbled at all by the response by the, the that is previous that the previous interaction got and and maybe it's, it should be surprising that he wasn't humbled by the fact that a man of of the purported stature that could get somebody fired with a single uh, you know email could only secure like a midday MSNBC spot to defend himself. Um, he wasn't humbled at all, so he wrote this piece. That's fine. I mean that should that's to be expected. But that the New York Times was happy to publish it is. Um, sort of galling. I mean, I don't, I mean, I guess it's not that big a deal in the, in the, in the grand scheme of things, but to, to, I guess, I guess here's the thing. He, he alluded to totalitarianism or, or a hit to echoes of totalitarianism when he was on MSNBC. He might've said Mm -hmm. that in a separate time. I don't think you're allowed to hurl. I think for someone who's so, uh, who's, who's so concerned about the implications of, Calling someone a bed bug of just the insinuations, the thing, the, the 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 ideas that are lurking underneath the surface. I don't think you're allowed to hurl charges of anti-Semitism without saying that was an anti-Semitic comment, sir, Mister Karp. Yes, you should just kind of come out and say if you if that's how you really feel. If you want to go down that road, the direct route is the way you should go. And the New York Times backing that up is like, I mean, that none of this is totalitarianism. Yes. None of this is totalitarianism. Let me make that really clear. No, oh, yeah, but, it's ludicrous. But, but but the idea that there's an institution as powerful as the New York Times is just going to bat for him in this case when he is like already patently in the wrong. That's that's a little that's a little bit frightening. I I would think it I would think that an outfit like the New York Times in an era where like more and more people think that they're fake news and think that they're unbelievably biased would be like concerned about the appearance of such things. Going to going to bat for a subtweet is a bad idea. Yeah. That's really bad. Like I said, if you want to make this charge, 
then just go ahead and make it. But see, that's the thing. I don't think he can make this charge because I, I think he, I don't, I don't think he believes it, but I think he can hand wave about how the idea of someone saying this at some point in history has an unsavory echo, blah, 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 blah. But I don't think he can. And you know, by the way, if he had made the charge directly, does that get into the New York times? I, I don't, think so i just don't know why the new york times is running their editorial page like a like a late 90s atlantic.com blog like you don't just get to respond <laughs> at, at length to everything that's on your mind you know i mean it's just it, even when you're pissy you don't necessarily get to put that into print it's fine just like you let it go this is the paper don't record the col- you know can't the columnists just kind of do whatever i think the problem is the columnists can kind of do whatever they want yeah well maybe and we sort of and what happens is the time sort of relies on them to be like okay I had, you know, I wrote about something weird today. Tomorrow I'm going to write about uh, Trump or I'm going to just go, I'm back to basics. But if you allow yourself like Brett Stevens to be driven to distraction by a tweet that had no retweets, why wouldn't you use your New York Times column on this? You're right. I mean, I know I mean, he did it. Come on. Yeah, but you're right. There's some, I, I think that's always been, I think that's been, you know, the strength and the weakness of, of, you know, editorial pages, op-ed pages is that they give these people broad latitude and sometimes that results in some really some great columns that an editor would really never assign. The bad news is you get stuff like this and you're just like, what is this? You know, and the times has said plenty of those. Remember, remember when uh, Bill Sapphire way back when was constantly tweeting that Wesley Clark was running for president as the stalking horse for Hillary Clinton. And he would mm-hmm. just say that every, he would just say that every day and be right. like, and it just turned out to be completely false. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, uh, that got in the paper too. By the way, Alex Perrine was doing a, um, a search for someone who was defending Brett Stevens the first time around. Uh, the winner of that contest the second time around is Ted Cruz. Oh, who yeah. tweeted on his behalf. Brett Stevens always displays civility and decency he treats people with respect and engages on substance dot 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 anyway uh congratulations to ted cruz for winning that uh i got this one in my email from you david loving dave Chappelle to own the libs <laughs> uh dave Chappelle released a netflix comedy special on august 26th that pissed off a lot of people uh with jokes about transgender people and michael jackson's accusers and david you noticed something pretty amazing on twitter what was it that there is a uh the, suddenly there was a uh a strange appearance uh, maybe a, 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 an unexpected appearance from what i would consider the kind of the farthest right reaches of the of, of the twitterverse who were coming out in support of dave Chappelle. i mean and, and and let's be clear there was a, there were a lot of voices and i believe at least one on the ringer.com who were uh, coming from the other end of the political spectrum, we were not very high on Dave Chappelle's latest uh, routine where he sort of uh, attacked a lot of uh, woke stalking horses, I guess would be the way to put it. And the, and, and uh, the, the response from the conservative sphere seemed to be, uh, finally, someone is sticking up for free speech in this era where the libs are trying to destroy it. Is that, from, did I get? Uh, do you think did that did that sound about no, right? I don't know. That is. I just I'm kind of in stunned the fir- silence. The first thing that the first thing that popped up, um, comp- I mean, uh, thanks to my uh, our coworker Andrew Gradadaro, was a tweet from Dana Loesch who said Dave Chappelle's Six and Stones was hilarious. Glad someone is sticking it to the cancel culture and encouraging people to laugh again. Uh, <laughs> hang loose emoji. What is that? Or hook 'em horns emoji? Uh, and then <laughs> God. Um, 
And then not to be outdone, Breitbart actually had John Nolte. It's a, it's a, uh, I don't even know how to describe John Nolte um, to someone who's not it's familiar the, with him. It's the guy with the Al Bundy avatar, right? Right. He's sort of a professional Al Bundy who doesn't, who who kind of thought that Married with Children was a documentary or something like that. He, it was a, he, he's a strange character, but he does, I think, consider himself a connoisseur of humor. Um, and, 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 and often he, I mean, a purveyor of it, he would consider himself one at least. And, uh, um, he watched and reviewed it and, um, uh, the special and was, I think taken with it. And I think that there was a, um, you know, Dave Chappelle in these same quarters, I think had a lot of, um, uh, had, had a very negative, um, uh, they had a very negative opinion of Chappelle for a long time, probably without engaging with him very much. But, and so there's a little bit of a, um, come to Jesus, like, you know, my eyes have finally been opened to his humor because he's an incredibly funny guy. But he closes the piece. This is John Nolte closes with the piece by saying, our society desperately needs a free speech revolution. And if the Obama-loving Chappelle and the Christian-mocking Gervais, is Ricky Gervais is what he's, he's talking to, want to lead it, I'll follow them straight to hell. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> um. Just so I have the tenets of the vast right-wing conspiracy straight, they are in favor of supporting Dave Chappelle's right to say anything he wants to, and no matter specific- how impolitic. Yes, but I mean, there's a lot of stuff about Michael Jackson in this. There was stuff about, what was it? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, okay. I'm not supposed to say this. There was specifically, uh, there was a specific riff about him on the Chappelle show, trying to say the F word over and over again and then, and then refusing him saying that. So there are literal words that he says he, you know, that that he's speaking in defense of being able to say out loud. And those aren't exactly words that I think anybody would be like clamoring to scream at the top of their lungs, but go ahead. Okay. So we're, we're defending Dave Chappelle's right to make jokes about charges of pedophilia and LGBTQ humor. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we are digging up bad tweets of journalists that they made in college and <laughs> using them to drive and using it to drive them out of the business. Okay, I just I just want to make sure I have everything straight. That, those two things are happening at the same time because it is bright bright Breitbart was doing the latter. So so both those things are happening on Breitbart right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that you should never mistake a you know a flailing a flailing website. Or a political strategy, you know, political strategy for like some sort of philosophy, but yeah, those two things are happening at the same time. Okay, just want to make sure. Yeah, Dave Chappelle, conservative hero. All right. Um, ooh, here we go, David. I don't do this very often, but every once in a while, I like to climb to the peak of Mount Journalism to make a statement about the profession. Uh, last time I put on the crampons and picked up the ice axe. I was complaining about journalists who change jobs in two installments. They say goodbye to the old job in one tweet, and then in a separate tweet, they announce their new job. I'll, I'll have more to tell you in just a few days. Uh, this is my new complaint here from the top of Mount Journalism. And this is not a subtweet of a particular person. It's a subtweet of everybody, okay. which is why do reporters celebrate the anniversaries of the publication of their stories? Have you noticed this? Yeah. Two years ago today, I published a profile of so-and-so. Eight years ago today, I published this or that. And my first question was, how the hell do they know <laughs> what happened? And and I was asking around about this over the weekend. I think the answer is they put the piece on Facebook originally. 
and Facebook, Facebook is sending them. them one of those anniversary things. Mm-hmm. Because do you have any idea what you did three years ago or five years ago? Just off. I mean, <laughs> don't you have any clue? <laughs> no. Right. But, but here's the complaint. You journalist, I only know from the internet. I don't care about your birthday. Okay. <laughs> I really don't care. I truly and sincerely don't care about your article's birthday. I mean, that is, that is, I, I just, I cannot, t- if you want, if you want to just shamelessly dredge up a, a, a years old piece of journalism, just, just do it. No need to wait for the peg. I, I think it's just, I think it's just fine. You can just do that at any time. And by the way, if you'd like to you know, celebrate your pieces, anniversaries or birthdays, you also have to do the bad ones. Okay. Two years ago today, I published this half-hearted column that my boss has made me write. <laughs> and I was embarrassed to even tweet it at the time. But here it is. One year anniversary. Happy birthday. Thank you very much. That's all I have. I'm coming down. I, yeah. Very good. Back very down good. The, back down the slopes of Mount Journalism. Pieces, pieces have birthdays. We're celebrating the birthday of a piece of journalism. An anniversary. You might say there's, we just did the moon landing, right? We did the Apollo thing. Now we're doing the piece I published. <laughs> it's just great stuff. All right, David, would you like to listen to a little Stuart Varney before we finish up today? Oh God. Yes. Always. Here's the host of the Fox business networks, Varney and company interviewing presidential candidate, Joe Walsh about whether Donald Trump deserves to be called a liar. Stuart, do you believe this president lies? No. You don't believe he's ever lied? He exaggerates and spins. Okay, do you believe he's ever told the American people a lie? No. Okay. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's it. Oh, my God. So, do we think Stuart Varney would agree to the, to the general idea that everybody lies, or most everybody lies at some time or another? But he is insisting that Trump does not lie or has never lied as president. Yeah, maybe he thinks maybe he thinks that everybody lies. Maybe he has a a much stricter definition of lie. That no that no one really else that no one shares, but maybe he just has a very, very narrow definition of what that means. I don't know. It's 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 best not to parse the these sort of ravings and then just appreciate them for the humor that they give us. When I was watching it, I realized I knew very little about Stuart Varney. Oh man, I kind of I kind of assumed he'd written a column for twenty years for a Murdoch paper in London, or maybe somewhere else, and then found his way to Fox News. But I didn't realize he had such a huge run at CNN, mm-hmm. including a stint of hosting Moneyline with Willow Bay. What a <laughs> what a moment in media time that was. Uh, he's been at Fox for fifteen years. The only other thing I have to say is. Fox business is kind of underrated bad. Oh, yeah. It almost seems like a pure distillation of the Fox id. There's just stock quotes running across the screen at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Like it's just just minute to minute. It might actually be worse than Fox News. I think it is. But we, I think that that's true. We just yeah. sort of forget it. It gets a little more obscure. Well, everybody know, forgets wild. it. That's sort of the point. Yeah. I mean, in, in some ways, it makes it even more insidious, right? It just gets the toilet anonymity. Uh, under the guise of, I mean, what could, we we talk about the parts of Fox News that are real news vis a vis their their opinion commentators or whatever, but this is like 
So this is all has the sheen of financial news. Like what could be more unbiased than that? This is numbers, right? An, <laughs> these are numbers guys telling you that your former president is a, you know, a Kenyan secret agent or something. And I mean, that's a, that's that's a that's a big deal. Time for David Shoemaker guesses the strained pun headline. Oh, God. Okay. There we go. By the way, I, we, we still got a storehouse of these things. So if you want to do, if we want to do an all headline edition, maybe we'll do that in the holidays. I, I really got like 20 of these. I every, every week. It's just, it's, it's incredible. Uh, Friday's winner was these marsupials go out with a bang. And this from Scott Caswell, David is going to keep us in the world of animals yet again. Lots of animal all stories. Right. All right. I'm okay with that. Bring out the puns. It's from the Canadian broadcasting Company's Saskatoon division. Not just the Canadian, not just the CBC, the Saskatoon division. Seems that back in the 70s, David, there was an animal at the at a Saskatoon zoo that was labeled a dingo. And okay. the writer Alicia Bridges reports it's that, in fact, dingo? it wasn't it was not a dingo. It was a hybrid of a dingo, a Labrador and a coyote. <laughs> It was falsely labeled. <laughs> when big, was this in the zoo? story? When was this in the, was zoo? in the It was in the 70s. Just we're just correcting the record. I here. mean, Don't I you? guess that doesn't Th- seem like it's that long ago, but this is I know a lot of people that like, you know, in small towns you'd be like, that guy owns a wolf. And like there was no like blood test for that. It could have just been like it was just a big muddy dog with pointy ears or whatever. You know, I mean, like it was a German shepherd with like a gray coat, but like it seems weird that they wouldn't be doing the sort of blood testing at the zoo. Yeah. Is it I, is I this like the, a wheels the, off sort of zoo? Like, is this, I mean. <laughs> no, I, I think the occasion is there are two new dingoes in from Australia. Oh, that's okay. Uh, that have just arrived. So I think we're kind of establishing that these are the first genuine dingoes at the Saskatoon. Oh, okay. I mean. This is yeah. that cause to sell? I, I don't really. I don't. I don't want to shit on the Saskatoon <laughs> Zoo more than I have to. But like, ding. I feel like you can get a dingo. Like, is that is that? <laughs> well, they may have had other priorities. Okay, you're you right. Know? You're right. So always celebrate your local zoo, though. That's cool. All right. Yeah. Do you do you do you have you gone to the zoo in your life looking for a dingo? Where are the dingoes? That's no, not my fir- that's not my first thing. I mean, and and in their defense, if they if there was like, I mean, a Labrador, I think I could identify. But if they had a couple of coyotes back there, and they're like, those are dingoes, I'd probably be like, okay, that's I I, I. oh, so what what's the question here? <laughs> <laughs> the takeaway here, and can I just can I just direct you away from any puns about the movie A Cry in the Dark, the Dingo Ate My Baby thing? It yeah. is not. It is not that. It's yeah, not okay. it's not dingo it is not dingo related at all. I'm sorry we went down Dingo Boulevard here. Uh it's about a mistake being caused because there was a dog in this animal's ancestry. A okay. dog in the animal's ancestry. What is the CBC's strained pun headline? Uh yeah. I mean it feels like this is like it's not like all bark and no bite or something doesn't make sense. Ooh, that's pretty good though. Um. Uh. It's not about. Is it Labrador specific or just dog? Just dog. Just general dog. dog. Just do, like, just general general animal. I've got some dog in this fight. Um. Dog dog in dog gone it dog dog gone uh dog. Okay. What, what do dogs Teeth. walk on? 
uh, I was just getting the body parts. Uh, pause. Hmm. Hitting pause. Uh, pause. Pa oh, God. You made a mistake. You made a blunder. Error. Pause. As we would say in French, faux. you made a Wait, faux pause. Yeah. Faux. Oh God. Faux, faux pause. Oh no! I didn't even get that when I said it. Does that read on the printed page? That's a great pun. It is, it actually is right. Faux pas. Faux pas. Yeah, but I don't know that I would immediately see that and go to like the fr the P A. I don't know. I'm so trained. But that's faux pas. Is a great. That's fantastic. Good work, CBC Saskatoon. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Research by Chris Almeida. Production magic by Jim Cunningham. We're back Friday, bright and early, with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. David. He's Dave. You, journalist I only know from the internet, mm -hmm. I don't care about your birthday, okay? I really don't care. Wow. I was stuck in an elevator for 25 minutes. I talk about inadequacy. What do you make of that problem? Uh, uh, last time I put on the crampons and picked up the ice axe before being rescued by firefighters. Mm -hmm. How the hell do they know I mean, it's a, it's a quandary. What do you make of that? I'll follow them straight to hell. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I think that that's all true. Do you have any idea what you did? Mistake a professional Al Bundy. What do you make of that conundrum? I don't think you're allowed to hurl. Lucky you. I was totally off the grid this weekend for the first time in a long time, and I and I and I surfaced. How silly and awful and lame is this? Uh, oh, is that a question for me? That's very okay, yeah. the answer. The, yeah, yeah. You don't just get to respond at, at length to everything that's on your mind. You know, I mean, it's just even when you're pissy, yeah. it's fine. Just like you let it go. Okay, just want to make sure. Yeah. No more Mr. Nice Guy, or or a little less Mr. Nice Guy. Only the best hurricanes under my watch. Okay. <laughs>